Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an old mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. I'm looking forward to chatting to you about lots of different topics tonight, including the future of SAA as it looks for another 22 billion rand in bailouts. Business Leadership South Africa pulling no punches as it praises Pravin Gordon for bulleting the Transnet board. We'll talk to Lika Sumba in Ghana, Kazkovadi at the Banking Association as to how useful the banking network can be in terms of distributing social grants. Dr. Adrian Saville, the big five things we can learn from South Africa's latest bond issue. We issued euro bonds today. It would look like pretty good rates, actually, um, and uh, borrowing money offshore. And then Sylvester Chauke, the founder at DNA Brand Architects. He's our shapeshifter coming up later on The Money Show. 702 The Money Show. Call Bruce on 011-883-0702. Today's fast fact question is easier than you might think. Just apply your mind and go, hmm, is that a possibility? And you'll probably get the right answer. What are the names of the crew members on flight BA93 from Toronto to London Heathrow on Saturday? On Saturday, a flight is leaving Toronto in Canada. BA93 flying to Heathrow. I'd like to know the names of all of the male and all of the female crew members on board that flight, please. 31702 31567. It's a lovely story. 702 The Money Show. Bruce is on Twitter at Bruce Business. Well, the Standing Committee on Finance in Parliament postponing its meeting to review SAA's fourth quarter results. They were ugly, just in case you need to know. The committee chairman wanted SAA hearings to be held in private to protect its strategies. That caused a furore. The National Treasury sent out the presentation that SAA was giving in Parliament anyway via email. 22 billion rand for a turnaround plan. They made a net loss of 1.8 billion. That was... 1.2 billion rand, worse than expected. Losses impacted by fewer passengers than budgeted on its flights and a whole lot of other complexities. I suggested the other day in a piece I wrote for businessinsider.co.za that if the current turnaround didn't work, SAA needed to be shut down. We have to stop throwing good money after bad with this thing at some point. We cannot keep funding it. And then I felt persecuted because then I looked at <laughs> I looked at Daily Maverick and there was a piece from Guy Leach but it looked like you were aiming it straight at me, Guy Leach, saying no, SAA should not be shut down. Editor and publisher of SA Flyer magazine. Enrich me with your wisdom. Yeah, hi Bruce, nice to be with you and great to have a little discussion on this point. The point is that it's actually truly painful. The, the, the sad reality is that it uh, it would cost far more than the currently budgeted $22 billion to shut the airline down. My best guess was at least double that in the region of 
40 billion rand, and that would exclude all the all the softer pain that would be entailed in, for instance, 10,000 sevens packages at the loss of connectivity. And let's say every job in aviation creates another six jobs elsewhere in the economy and tourism and all that sort of good stuff. So uh, there are a lot of good reasons for keeping the airline going. That's why um, President Gordon and Minshanshaneni are still committed to supporting the airline and have barely blinked at um, CEO Durana's a request for 22 billion rand. I have to say, though, that it's very worrying. When I wrote that piece just five days ago or so, they were only asking for 17 billion, so they've just quietly snuck in another 5 billion rand. And I mean, the sad thing here is that, yes, it would be lovely if the airline would be, could be closed down, of course. It would get rid of the 6 billion rand a year drain from our, our, our taxpaying pockets. But the reality is that I, I think that they've just got to grasp the nettle and keep on with it. And certainly to try and make it work is a far better idea. But this is turnaround plan number 10. Was it 11? Was it 12? I don't know. I've lost touch. Well, yeah, it's, we've had about 10 turnaround plans and 10 management teams over the past 10 years. It's, not, it's hard to count them all because we've had sort of plans within plans like the 90-day turnaround strategy. And that's obviously a huge concern and i think it's a concern that you correctly pointed out what gives us any comfort that this time around this management team will be able to do what the others couldn't do i mean are we saying that the other ones were just idiots and useless and incompetent and somehow the current management team under mr gerana is is the exception to all of this well we have no choice but to hope that and my advice to um minister nanny and gordon in this, uh, in, the, for in this thing, whole turnaround issue was it? So they were asking for three years to turn it around. Let them uh, report back every month on how it's going. Set clear milestones. Set clear measures that we can come and see if they're turning around. And if they aren't succeeding in their own plan, well then, yes, I think that you'd have to be right. It would be your turn to be right, <laughs> and then it must just be closed down. The reality, too, of course, is that it can't be sold off. No. There's just no one who wants to take a share. Uh, in a in a essentially moribund airline with huge liabilities, and the reality is that you can't even settle for a small shareholding because the uh, law in this country, the Air Services Licensing Council, prohibits uh, foreign ownership of more than 25%. No one in their right mind would buy 25% in an airline that has had a long history of government interference. So all the cards are stacked against the current um, management team, and let me just point out too that the industry has got that much tougher over the past five or mm. six or seven years. The SAA is shrinking. It's not able to compete against all the other carriers. It's going to be that much harder to turn it around. And yet we're expected to have faith. I mean, I was inspired by the fact that British Airways would, uh, was introducing three frequencies a week to, uh, direct to King Shark International and sort of doing an overnight flight, then flying back the next day, uh, doing a day flight back to London, then flying back and doing the same thing all over again. And one gets a sense that with proper management, airlines can make money. Ethiopian is expanding and has been recognized as being a very successful airline. Um, Kenya has had its ups and downs. But, I mean, there are African airlines that are doing well and airlines in and out of this region are doing well too. Yes, and the interesting thing is that, of course, the one airline that is doing well is Ethiopian, and Ethiopian is a state-owned airline, which rather puts the caboose on all those who insist that uh, SAA should be privatized because governments don't know how to run airlines. It's also worth pointing out that there are other successful examples of, of state-owned airlines, like uh, obviously Singapore is another good example, and the Gulf Airlines are essentially state-owned but I think that the, 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 the clear case studies that we need to look at in this 
and for SAA or in New Zealand in particular, which hit the wall or 10 years ago, we had got a new management team and they shaped it up, turned it around and it went to win on the, went to win the best airline uh, for the year award. And yet it suffers the same geographical problems mm. as South African Airways. You know, it's an end-of-the-line carrier. It's very small. In fact, it's, it's the same size as SAA, but the New Zealand population is about a tenth of ours. So it really does have to work that much harder. So there's a lot we can learn from Ethiopian, sorry, from New Zealand, and there's, uh, we can look to South America as well. Uh, we need to see what they call liberalisation, and we've got a wonderful example in South America with LATAM, where they, the Chilean airline and the Brazilian airlines got together and made a, you know, a, a continental airline, which would certainly work for Africa. My thanks to Guy Leach, the editor and publisher of SA Flyer magazine, giving SAA another um, giving SAA another sort of lifeline, I suppose. Twenty-two billion rand, lots of good reasons to keep SAA airborne. But really, if this turnaround doesn't work, is there, to your mind, any merit in keeping it going? Seven o two, the Money Show. Call Bruce on o double one double eight three o seven o two. Oh, let's go live to FNB Stadium to Siswe Mbele, the Director of Strategy at Business Leadership South Africa. Uh, you, you're looking forward to the football this evening, Siswe? Yeah, thanks, Bruce, for having me. Um, my son insisted that I had to, uh, to accompany him, so I apologize for noise in the background. No, it's a little bit of atmosphere, a little bit of atmosphere. Has kickoff happened? No, 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 okay. no, but I'm not fascinated about it. More of a Real Madrid supporter, so <laughs> I'm just accompanying him. Okay, good. Now, listen, let's talk on to the serious matter at hand. Translates board getting fired yesterday, an interim board being put in. Your boss, Bonang Mohare, issuing the strongest statement I've seen, and he's good at strong statements, uh, basically saying that uh, the cleanup of state-owned enterprise is absolute imperative, um, and uh, the, the, the new board must be composed of individuals with unimpeachable integrity. I mean, this is serious stuff in terms of the attempts by public enterprises to turn these state-owned enterprises around. Absolutely. That's the view that uh, BLSA, certainly Bonang, has been uh, advocating. If you do look at the state-owned enterprises, there are over 300 of them. Uh, the last time I counted, there were over 327. And, and President Godan is responsible for about six of those namely the ESCOM, the NEL, of course, and we do see that there is Express, there is a forest, there is Diamond, and, 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 and therefore what we are saying is that these state-owned enterprises, state-owned companies specifically, they are meant to drive the economy, they are meant to, um, to facilitate the fixed investment that is much more infrastructure space to drive the economy, and therefore we demand not just the strong board, but we demand ethical leadership so that they can facilitate and execute on the mandate that they were designed to do. Now, I mean, it's really interesting, and it's easy to get disheartened about South Africa and say, boy, you've got to throw out the entire board of transit. But if you think that, and this is Anton Eberhardt who's tweeted this this evening, say we forget that Cyril Ramaphosa has only been president for three months, and so far we've got a new ESCOM board and we've got implicated executives out. We've got a new Transnet board, a new Danel board, and the chief executive is gone. A new Prasa board. Tom Moyani is gone at SARS. Arthur Fraser is out at the State Security Agency. Northwest Province has taken over um, and, and is under administration, and the Eastern Cape could very well be next. I mean, there is a huge amount happening really fast in South Africa right now. 
Absolutely. But what this indicates, Bruce, is the fact that the state capture project that started at least 10 years, 10 years ago has been so endemic, has been spoiling everything that the South African economy and all our generation has been fighting for. And therefore, it is time that the, not just the new dawn, but the Tumamina campaign, which the Siranda Mapapa and the ANC have been advocating to say that now it's time to clean up all the mess that the previous administration was simply driving. If you look at the numbers that are being mentioned, the 100 billion South African rent, at least in a year, you can see that in the past 10 years, I mean, the state culture really robbed us over at least a trillion rent. But no one knows the extent of the state culture, and therefore it demands strong votes. Following on the strong votes, they should be independent and they should be ethical. And therefore, then the executive needs to be capable people who know what they are doing, people who can differentiate between a revenue and an income and profitability. And therefore, those people need to really look at the business case. What is it that the state-owned enterprises and state-owned companies are supposed to do? So the real work really begins now. And we do welcome the interim board that um, Minister Pavin Gordon has appointed, notwithstanding the fact that it is interim. But we believe that uh, similarly yesterday I attended the, uh, the, the budget uh, vote. And he, say, and he keeps on mentioning that now is the time to make sure that we put capable individuals who know what they are doing, not because of the patronage that you've seen in the last nine or ten years, Bruce. Susan Bella, thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening. Director of Strategy at Business Leadership South Africa at the football at FNB Stadium, causing all kinds of traffic havoc in Joburg today. Susan uh, Bella, enjoy the game this evening. 702 The Money Show. The Money Show. SMS Bruce on 31702. Mike at Durbanville, you want to talk SAA? Or are you brave? Yeah, Mike. I just wanted to say that, you know, I, I actually sit and listen. This is like round number 10 that they've been going on with SAA. But the bottom line is they don't look at the, the proper, the crux of the matter is that SAA is top heavy. And they need to start firing people, getting rid of all the fat at the end of the day to make it profitable. And that's, and that's the problem is that the ANC will never do that because they're going to have to get rid of it. And it's the same with Eskim. They've got, it's so top heavy. There's so many salaries, fat salaries in there. They need to get rid of all these people, streamline the business, and it'll be profitable. Yeah. That's the bottom line. Mike at Durbanville, I think a lot of people will agree with you on that point. Thank you for the call. The Money Show. The Markets. Chris Stewart with Investec Asset Management, our market commentator this evening on what was a good day for the JSE. But just play along with us before we talk markets. Uh, what are the names of the crew members? I want to the names of all of the male and the crew members and all of the female crew members of BA93 from Toronto to Heathrow on Saturday. It's easier than you think. What are the names of the crew members of BA93 on Saturday? Chris Stewart from Investic Asset Management. Nuspat today looked like somebody had poured jet fuel over it and thrown in a match. Yeah, Bruce, good evening. Uh, Nuspat has been somewhat out of favour of late, which is unusual, uh, I, I guess, if you'd got used to the euphoria surrounding Naspers and all things related to Naspers over the last couple of years. Uh, there had been a fair degree of nervousness around 10 cents quarterly results that were coming out today. And uh, 
Tencent certainly delivered and delivered uh, substantially ahead of market expectations, both in terms of revenue uh, and in terms of operating profit. Uh, and as a result of that, Nasdaq got a real shot in the arm today. Mm, up five percent on the day, and when Nasdaq goes up five percent, the overall market will be a beneficiary. There were lots of other gainers on the day, uh, but Nasdaq is a key driver of today's one and a quarter percent gain on the JSE. Yeah, it was a generally a, a more positive day. There wasn't an awful lot that went down, other than gold stocks and some mm. uh, global defensive stocks. So, generally speaking, anything that had a uh, local uh, cyclical theme to it, or even a global cyclical theme to it, uh, did pretty well. Uh, we saw uh, the U.S. futures starting to reflect that they would have a better open that dragged most risk assets up uh, globally. Uh, you saw the RAND come back a little bit. You saw commodity prices remaining quite robust. So that was supportive uh, of, as I said, most parts of the market other than precious metals and some mm. of the defensive Yeah, the platinum's got nailed, so did gold shares on the day. I was surprised by the retail sales numbers for the first quarter. They were pretty awful. One would have thought with Ramaphoria, the Cyril Spring, and the sense of optimism in the country that people would have gone to the shops and taken their credit cards out and stretched them as far as they could go and. It didn't really happen. No. I mean, you know, the March numbers were okay, a little bit better than uh, one might have expected, but you've got to take the uh, Easter effect into account. And if you strip out the Easter effect, uh, which impacted this year relative to the base year, as you say, uh, consumer sales uh, and generally activity levels in the first quarter have been poor. And I'm I'm a little bit concerned as to what the first quarter GDP number is going to say if you look at mining production, Mm. manufacturing production, uh, and the performance of the consumer thus far year to date. I think we're going to see a fairly miserable uh, first quarter GDP number, uh, which may be good news or bad news. I mean, it may be interpreted as good news because it opens the door for further rate uh, cuts. But, you know, given some of the dollar strength, Your. rand weakness and volatility, we've seen uh, there's probably a heightened degree of caution around cutting rates. So we're not seeing on the ground the physical manifestation of what the consumer confidence and business confidence indicators should be telling us. And perhaps we are naive in believing that we should be seeing them already. Uh, You've seen some of the stocks that got very, very excited in the last quarter of last year and in December in particular, retail stocks, banks uh, coming off a little bit. Uh, And those have been coming off a little bit perhaps because the activity indicators aren't uh, validating, if you like, the sort of excitement that we saw reflected in the share prices. But again, one should understand that if a corporate uh, becomes more optimistic in December of last year and suddenly decides that actually this project is back on. The project is now in planning phase. It will then go through approval phase. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, the drawdown of capital in order to exercise that project is something that will only take place uh, quite substantially after that. Uh, that may manifest in increased employment and the increased employment may result in an improved consumer budget, which may result in mm. improved consumer gotcha. spending, credit extension. It takes time for these which things is, to get you know, It's at best an H27, H218 phenomenon, but probably more likely mm. a 2019 phenomenon. Okay, makes sense then. And probably the, the least showy offy, um, the, the quietest company that does brilliantly consistently is Mondi. Um, its operations outside of South Africa listed on the JSE, and it just keeps on performing. Yeah, it's a, that, you know, that really glamorous business like packaging materials and sacks. Somebody has to do sacks it. Sacks that you put cement in and can 
container board and all that good it stuff. It makes money. Um, but the fact is uh, a very strong uh, trading update for the first quarter. Remember, they've got a December year end, so this is their first quarter trading update. Uh, very strong update out of Mondi today, despite the fact that they indicated they've got you know some shutdowns for maintenance going on within the business. Currencies aren't particularly helping, and they've got some uh, input uh, cost inflation coming through. The fact is that the pricing environment and the demand environment is so good that uh, that's actually outweighing any of the negatives uh, from currency or production disruptions or input costs. Uh, and as a result of that, they're guiding for uh, pre-tax uh, profits or EBIT uh, to grow somewhere in the mid-teens. Sure. This market's probably only looking for 10 to 12%. So I would say, it's really good. Uh, if anything, that may lead to earnings upgrades uh, yep. from Mondi. Really good update from Mondi today. Nasbat flying courtesy of Tencent and retail sales numbers. Don't wish for too much too soon. Let's see if Chris Seward is connected with the with the, with the real world, um, what are the names of all of the crew members on BA ninety three from Toronto to Heathrow on Saturday? No, Bruce, I don't know. So, if the male, if all the male attendants on the plane are going to be called Harry, all the female attendants on the plane will be called Megan. Yes, and BA has got enough Harrys and Megans working within BA to actually make it possible. They're putting real Harrys and real Megans on the flight on Saturday. It's the day of the royal wedding, and the British Airways operating a flight from London to Toronto only with crew members named Harry and Megan, spelled with a G H or M E G A N. They're not going to be. You know, it's, it's the way it sounds, not the way it's actually spelled. But Prince Harry and Meghan Markle lived in London and Toronto respectively before Meghan Markle moved to Great Britain, and passengers named Harry and Meghan will be allowed access to the first class lounge. I'm sure the paying customers are going to be absolutely delighted. There'll be wedding themed treats on board and if you're named Harry and Meghan and you don't give a damn, please don't go on BA93 from Toronto to, to Heathrow because you're going to be sick to your stomach. There's wall to wall documentaries about yeah, Harry and Meghan. There is a, a the the series that she was in, Suits, is going to be playing across the entertainment system. It is going to be a flight from hell if you're not a royalist. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Well, the football's underway at FNB Stadium. We'll catch up with Morena on that in just a second. But first, let me tell you that on the next Money Show, we're taking another look at Bitcoin with personal finance expert Warren Ingram. We took so much abuse the last time we talked Bitcoin. Now it's at a fraction of what it was at its peak, and Warren's got some lessons from it. Also, join us for the small business feature with Pablo Fatidis. It's family businesses, it's succession in family businesses, and at what point do you just get the family out of the business and let them harvest the returns of professional managers. That's all next time on The Money Show. Africa Connected, your link to Africa's markets. Brought to you by Standard Bank. Moving forward, hashtag Africa Connected. Well, Africa Connected with Standard Bank gives you trusted insights into the endless potential of Africa's markets. We've sent the Pan-African broadcaster, Lee Kasumba, to look at how to do business across the continent. This month, she is in Kumasi in Ghana. Follow her journey on africaconnected.co.today and social media, hashtag Africa Connected. Right now, though, let's hear what Lee is up to. Uh, Lee, tell me about Kumasi and why you're there. 
And so we're here to basically find out exactly what it is that makes this city stand out from a car, for example, and some of the investment opportunities and business, and how it is that, um, you know, government is able to formalize uh, the informal um, trading sector, which is pretty much the backbone and the, and the core of the Kumasi uh, economy as a whole. Okay. And of course it tastes the great food. And the great <laughs> look, if you're travelling without eating, there's no point in travelling, frankly. I mean, it's all about, the food. It's all about <laughs> the food. Now tell me about the Senior Development Planner, this Metro Planning Coordination Unit Head that you've met. Yes, so basically we had a conversation with him and he falls under the Kumasi Metropolitan Assembly, which reports directly into the mayor. And, you know, we, we, we were able to get some very interesting stats and information from him with regards to just the investors that are coming into Kumasi. So earlier on when I spoke with Joanne, I mentioned um, the Brazilian investors um, that are investing into Kumasi and also the fact that Turkey is investing quite a lot into Kumasi. But he also mentioned about how it is that some of the other big countries that are investing into Kumasi are the Dutch. So the Dutch, for example, have the largest um, cocoa um, production plant in West in the West African region. So he spoke a bit about that. And then he also told us about how, um, you know, the Indian, the Indian, India, sorry, um, and, and Lebanon are also huge investors in Kumasi. And they basically focus a lot more on gold, on refined gold. They focus on trade as well and the pharmaceutical industry as well as timber. And yesterday, I remember as we were driving along, I kept on seeing these big, big, like, trucks with these big trees. And then he explained that that was the timber industry that's also quite thriving in this area. It seems like a beautiful part of the world. I mean, is there lots of tourism? Yes, there is lots of tourism. What's interesting, though, is that um, in terms of tourism that comes in, so they say that uh, um, on average, when you look at the comparison between internal tourists, so people who are from um, Ghana, but not necessarily from Kumasi, and then people from outside of Ghana, it's 40-60. 60% of the tourists that come into Kumasi are actually Ghanaian, which is quite um, incredible, you know? Um, and also, he said that one of the things that makes uh, Ghana ideal in terms of having a customer base and for traders and the tourism and grows the tourism industry quite a lot is the fact that Ghan, I mean, Kumasi is an area where a lot of different nations have to kind of travel through. So the people from Mali, from Niger, they all travel through Kumasi on the way somewhere else. And he says that Kumasi is so beautiful that people tend to travel and not leave. <laughs> they just travel, they land up here and they fall in love with it. And I think that this could also play a huge role in the fact that, um, you know, he said about how in 2010, although Accra is the capital city, um, right now Kumasi is the most populous city in Ghana and that was something I had no idea about. And tell me then about fires. Is there the Kachitia Mall has it been destroyed by fire? Yeah, so, so that mall is the mall that the Brazilians, uh, well, um, sorry, the market is, is what the Brazilians are now investing in. So they, um, they, they have 80,000 traders. And part of the reason why the traders were willing to get into the new center was because there was a case where every year, at least twice a year, there were fires that would just come out sporadically um, at this, at, at, on the, in the Open Park Mall. So basically what they're doing now is that by having it within a center that is now government-controlled, all of the vendors uh, slash traders have biometrics and there is a lot of safety and security that has been built into the new center it means that people won't lose their stock as much so it's been mutually beneficial for the informal sector here as well as for government because now they will be able to have a lot of tourists go through that particular area it sounds massively dynamic i mean that's certainly the the impression i'm getting from you there is there quite a lot of infrastructure development 
There is um, infrastructure development. Um, you know, comparatively, um, Kumasi is not quite as developed as what Accra is. But you can see as you travel along, you can see a lot of infrastructure development. And they're also working really hard on their roadworks, um, which is what um, the, the, the KMA had actually said, that the roadworks is something that they're really working towards. So, But when you look at places like um, Ketija Market, for example, and then also the big military hospital, which has been a project that's been on again, off again, you see that sort of thing. There is quite um, a lot of um, infrastructural development in terms of that. And also something that I did want to add that I thought was amazing. They also emphasize the fact that, you know, um, in Kumasi, everything that is done, the you know, has to go through the king of the Ashanti. And because of that, they are very, you know, they're very strict with regards to having a workforce from, from Kumasi. So a lot of the people who work on the sites or in the different um, productions and everything are people from Kumasi, not just uh, in terms of the workforce and the labor force, but also in terms of if they're more high level, they work side by side with their Brazilian counterparts or with the Indian counterparts and that sort of thing. And that's one, that's one thing that the, that the king of the Ashanti is very strict about. So it's really lovely to see how it is that they ensure that as, the, as, this, as this part of the country grows and develops, the people don't get left behind and they are involved um, in the economy, and they also are able to uplift themselves. Lee Kasumba, thank you very much. From Kumasi in Ghana this evening, Lee Kasumba with Africa Connected. For more on these travels, go to africaconnected.co.za. Standard Bank calls Africa home and drives her growth, combining their strong African presence with global capabilities. Standard Bank supports businesses that need a banking partner who knows Africa. Standard Bank has partnered with 702 and Cape Talk on Africa Connected to give you in-depth, first-hand insights into Africa's diverse markets and the innovative solutions that come from Africa. Standard Bank, moving forward. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. So when last did you go into a branch for your bank? Did you go and stand in the queue and wait to speak to the teller or go and get some problem resolved in the bank? Or are you finding that you're barely ever going there, if at all? Um, you can do everything on the phone. You can go to an ATM. Most things can be done um, independently of the bank. So what's going to happen to bank infrastructure into the future if branches are simply left to, to rot as everything becomes increasingly digital. Well, Kaz Kavadia, Managing Director of the Banking Association of South Africa, joins us on the line from Johannesburg. And discussions with the uh, South African Social Security Agency, SASA, to use the branches to distribute social grants. Kaz, is this a brand new idea? Uh, well, not a brand new idea. We've been interacting with uh, SASA and with the ministry under the previous minister for quite some time. And what we put to them is that we have a banking infra- infrastructure with a range of low-cost products across certainly the big four banks that can be utilized to deliver social grants. Uh, and... We don't need to limit people to a single account with particular characteristics. Uh, We can offer a range of accounts and people can use accounts that are suitable to them. And and since the cabinet shuffle and Minister Dlamini being uh, shifted out of social development, we've made tremendous progress. And on the 1st of April, banks... Uh, identified 2.8 million people who had accounts with them and social grants were delivered through those accounts and we busy identifying more people from data that had been supplied and banks will then uh, 
offer accounts to people who don't have and utilize accounts of people if people do have accounts to actually enable SASA to deliver social grants through those accounts. And those could be all types of products. I mean, so, you know, a young, uh, a young person receiving a child grant might want a different product to an old age pensioner. And I think we should enable people to have those choices. Um, and and so the idea, I mean, when it, it was working fine, and then the contracts were ruled to be illegal, and then the post office put its hat into the ring. Now the established banks are putting their hats into the ring. What does it do to branch dynamics, though? If a couple of times a month you have thousands of people descending on the local bank branch in Pofadar, wherever the branch might be. Well, we don't think that everybody is going to pop into branches to do this. People will use ATMs. Uh, younger people might use electronic wallets. Uh, there, there's a whole banks have a whole range of low-income products that that are available today, and so we're not uh, saying that that people will have to walk into branches to access their funds. Uh, they can use ATMs. Some of them would do it via via mobile technology. Uh, and and what the discussion we've been having is because originally Sasa said that banks would have to open a single account with the same characteristics. We took the view that that limits choice. Secondly, uh, there's competition issues. We can't actually get together and agree on the same product. And thirdly, it takes time and money to develop a new product. Here we've got products, we've got an infrastructure that can be leveraged. So let's leverage that. And, and, and you know, people who want to walk into branches to do their banking will do that. People who want to do it through ATMs will do that. People who want to use mobile technology will do that. And, and, and that, then we see this as an opportunity for financial inclusion. Get people into the system as the economy improves and younger people get more opportunity and they want to use the account for transactional purposes and so on. They're in the system, they have an account, and it gives them opportunities to actually grow. So when we look at the dynamics in the branch, so if I'm a customer of a branch and people come in, how are we going to manage the queues? I mean, how are we going to, to, to deal with the complexity, especially when you consider that the branches have also been utilized for distributing it on a pilot basis, new ID documents and passports. I think two branches of each bank um, in, in Gauteng can do that. And, and that's been going for two or three years very successfully, yet isn't being rolled out. I mean, is there really appetite for the banking sector to roll out these very successful pilots that we see? Well, it, that wasn't rolled out because there was a change in leadership at Home Affairs. Uh, the director general was suspended. We were actually about to sign the MOU. Uh, we had been through a long process of talking to the unions, of getting the banks together, of agreeing uh, service level agreements. We were about to sign the MOU when Nkuselia uh, Pleni was suspended. And, and as a result of, of the problem that Home Affairs, that thing was delayed. Uh, Nkuseli is back. I've have, had a discussion with him. Uh, we need to pick that up again and get this thing signed, and it will then roll out. Uh, so, so it's not that there's, there's a lack of willingness on the part of banks to do that. Also here, I think that, you know, uh, all the people who had SESA cards, were using bank ATMs. They weren't necessarily all walking into branches. And now with, with a, a, an opportunity to offer not just bank ATMs, but different range of products, 
they, we certainly don't foresee that thousands of people are going to queue up advantages. I think that they will, they will take advantage of a range of products that they can use. And, and, and there'll be a spread between utilization of ATMs, people walking into branches, and other types of products. And, and, and Bruce, I think what we need to do is, we've taken the view that this is something that we need to solve for. It's in the yeah. national interest. We need to sort it out. We don't need to shoot ourselves in the foot in this issue yeah. and play around with the lives of the poorest of the poor. It's unrolling. In, in, on the 1st of April, banks did 2.8 million transfers. They'll, that will go up uh, as, as the month roll on. And, and the, the interaction with SASA at the moment is an ongoing one. It's a very constructive one. If we pick up problems, if we pick up problems of branches being crowded, if that does happen, then we'll deal with it at that yeah. time. We'll talk about it. We'll see what do we do to solve that. Is there a possibility, for instance, of... of uh, 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 issuing social grants at different times of the month to stagger the thing. And that could be one solution. But I think that what we want to do is we want to get this thing going. Let's see how it pans out. Let's, get the, let's start delivering the services. And then if we pick up these sorts of problems, at least we've got a good interaction, a constructive interaction with SASA, and we can pick up the phone and say, look, we've got a problem here. Let's sit down and deal with it. So we've Sort of the relationship has been established, the trust issues have been settled, and I think that gives us a good platform. It's a good place to start. Kaz Kavadia, the Managing Director of the Banking Association of South Africa, and also with Plenty back at Home Affairs, there's a chance that we could see a sign-off on expanding. Oh, please let it happen. Uh, the, the project that gets, uh, you can apply for passports and uh, ID cards in bank branches. If that gets uh, an, another fill-up and gets sp- expanded, that would be brilliant news for everyone. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. It is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Colin Cullis in just a moment with Business Unusual. Dr. Adrian Saville from Canon Asset Managers in a bit. Uh, we talk to him about today's Euro bond issue. Oh, I promise it's a lot more exciting than that because um, the fact that we're going to Europe and going to issue uh, bonds in euros, borrowing money in euros over the next 10 to 15 years is amazing, uh, frankly, uh, considering where we have come from and the sort of difficulties South Africa's economy has faced. So lots of good stuff to come up on tonight's Money Show. The Money Show. Business unusual. Sketch me a picture. Yeah, I'm going to gush a little bit tonight, I'm afraid. I, usually I try and keep things all very serious. You know, and professional. Professional. Uh, it's kind of hard for me on this one. This, you're this a, you're a groupie on superheroes. I didn't, I didn't think I was. But you know, as I was doing the research for this and having to go and watch a couple of movies again that perhaps oh, I forgot you about. Oh, you poor thing. Yeah. I tell you what, I am really uh, impressed with what these guys did. And it's around Marvel and the superheroes in general. But the 19... 19- Movies they've released since 2008. Have Netflix? Sorry, the 19 movies mm. they've released since 2008. I mean, that makes the James Bond franchise, which has been going for an awfully long time, look like child's play. Yeah. 19 movies in 10 years, 100, and, well, in excess of 150 billion rand. Cost them $3.7 billion to make this stuff, and they're rapidly passing the $16.4 billion uh, worth of money taken. And, and the secret for the overnight success? Well, 60 years 
of some very hard slog work. And this is kind of where the unusual part is. Some pretty impressive new digital technology complements of how cinemas are, can do the presentations and actually, actually watch this stuff. But but let me let me start you. And I know you're not necessarily a big fan, but see how many of these names sort of ring a bell or like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you might say with some of these. Right. Tick. Um, of all of the superheroes, probably right across the known sort of literary genres, Superman, I think we could say, was arguably Tick. the first and the best well-known. He's a DC a creation, uh, uh, what did they call themselves, detective comics, no, we'll just call them DC now, uh, rather than Marvel. Uh, but he wasn't actually the first one. The first one uh, was the Scarlet Pimpernel. Was that a superhero? He was a superhero because he would have an alter ego. He would do his amazing deeds in disguise. Aha. Uh-huh. That gave us Zorro. That gave Quite us you. the Lone Ranger. That's how we got Clark Kent. So actually, DC, when they came up with Superman, was looking to take somebody who would look normal but could do amazing things. And this was kind of how the, the superhero uh, thing came about. Um, who else was there? Uh, John Carter, maybe you would know that one. Um, there was others like, uh, well, I mentioned Zorro, Lone Ranger, Buck Rogers. Yep. Predates Superman. Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. Predated Superman. Is, this, is Conan the Barbarian a superhero? Well, he's kind of a – they fall into the genre of people with either special powers okay. or humans that can do special things. They, they've kind of fit into this quite broad universe. Uh, but the Phantom, Flash Gordon, all of these guys, all before Superman, and that was all 1938. Superman was created. It's kind of crazy. Um, uh, and, and so here's where the, the, the stuff sort of kicks off. So uh, DC is the, is the Disney, effectively, of, of comic books mm-hmm. back in the, in the 40s when this is all going on. Uh, and Marvel is this little, little small-time player. There's quite a few of the, the other little ones. Uh, and they happen to have signed up uh, these two guys, Stanley and Jack Kirby. I'm going to feature Stanley a little bit more, but really they were a pair. Uh, Jack Kirby at one point went back to DC because he wasn't very happy with Marvel. But the two of them were the most prolific comic book writer-creator teams who, who really did set up uh, some pretty amazing things. Uh, and the impressive thing potentially is that Lee actually wasn't happy with where he was going. It was late 30s uh, and he was thinking I want to be an actual novelist. That's why his name is Stan Lee, not his full name because he figured that I'll reserve for when I'm an author, not writing you know, kids books. Uh, but uh, the publisher of Marvel noticed that DC had created this thing called Justice League. They took all of the superheroes and let them act together. And Marvel's publisher said hey, hey, Stan, I've got this great idea. Copy them. And Lee was about to say, like, hey, <laughs> I just got to get out of this. And his wife convinced him to say, hey, think about this. You can create all the characters you want to in the way you want to. You've been given a blank sheet here. And he kind of figured, okay, let's do this. And along with Jack Kirby, in the 60s when this all sort of took place, he put together, let me run you through some of the list, uh, Iron Man, Thor, Black Panther, Hulk, Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, the X-Men, Guardians of the Galaxy, Vision, Silver Surfer, and Captain Marvel. Now, there's a much longer list, and some of them I don't even know. I can't. I didn't read the comic books. I watch the movies. Um, and so they create this entire thing, and, and, and they really start doing well. This tiny little magazine starts taking on DC in some very significant ways, but not in ways significant enough that they can actually you know, win a war. They're not going to really change the, the dial too much, and they're certainly not making huge amounts of cash. Ultimately, these are comic books. They're a tiny little footnote in a much bigger thing happening uh, as, as, as things progress. Uh, so he's, he's la- languishing away doing all this stuff. In fact, in the, in the 80s, he, he packs it all in. He goes off to Hollywood and says, listen, I've got, to, I've got to turn this into movies or TVs or whatever else. And that wasn't a bad idea. Uh, 1978, Superman, the movie came out that put Christopher Reeve on the map. Uh, and, and Margot Kidder to some degree as well. She was Lewis Lane. She, she, died, she died this week. She died this weekend. Indeed, yeah. she did. Um, so, so that was the, the, the hallmark of that one. And it too um, uh, was a big step forward because they put a big budget to this thing. 
and they really did uh, do some impressive special effects. So people watched this and were like, wow, this is starting to replicate what you can do with a comic book. Hey, isn't it amazing? I mean, I, I just remember Superman flying the, the wrong way around the world and getting a turning again. That was just, it was marvellous. Absolutely brilliant stuff. Um, so he's, he's off over there. He, he, he's trying to find a fit and, and nothing really happens until sort of late in the 90s. A whole bunch of computer guys are doing a whole bunch of their thing. The internet starts coming along and, and a particular kind of graphics card comes along that allows for computer-generated imagery. Finally, changes the game completely. Finally, the storytelling and the presentation could come together to make that work. Every blast and explosion and punch and you know background and, and crazy bit in the universe uh, could be could be created. And also, you you could save yourself a lot of money because you can imagine when these big destruction scenes happen and somebody filming the thing and then ah, there's a continuity error or something didn't work. So, okay, stop, stop. Rebuild everything, everybody. Let's spend another $2 million to do that. At least in the CGI, you can, you can do whatever else uh, you, exactly. you want to do. It. So you create your backdrops, you do all these other stuff. And then they come along with 3D uh, uh, imaging, your big IMAX screens, your, your sound. And we don't actually give enough credit for how much sound plays a role when you're watching movies. Yeah. The versions you have in a cinema now is 7.1. And a lot of people are like, oh, I've got a 5.1 cinema, I've got a 7.1 cinema. They have no idea what they're talking about, I, I, I suspect. I'll give you a quick little primer. The first number refers to how many speakers there are that will create sound. And the point one means... You have a subwoofer, just the bass sounds. If you have seven, it means you've got two in the front, two on either side of you, two at the back, and one in the front. There's your seven speakers, and the point one gives you other bit. Uh, but let's go back to the, the movies themselves. So Iron Man kicks off this run for Marvel uh, after they've uh, met. They, they actually got sold. They were like basically bankrupt. They got bought over, and a big risk was taken in 2008 to say, should we cast Robert Downey Jr.? As Iron Man. Was this his comeback? Because this, he'd, come, he'd gone off the rails so badly at Robert Downey Jr. And he'd been written off, hadn't he? Yeah. Uh, Wondery makes an excellent podcast. They recreate all the various bits. And, and in this particular thing, the producer and, and most of the directors are like, we're going to have to shoot so many other actors because he's going to be drunk. He's not going to pitch. Mm. And luckily, he's going to be in a suit half the time and we're not going to see anything. But what a fantastic choice it was. And I suppose you would you would recognize this when, when uh, Downey Jr. got the role. And he said, listen, how are you going to be Tony Stark? He went and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to base this a bit on Elon Musk because he is our modern day. He is, a, I think, a fairly good equivalent for, uh, for, for, for Tony Stark, the, the Iron Man character. And uh, Elon Musk actually appears in Iron Man 2. There's a little... Yes, he does. He, yeah, I remember that a little bit. In fact, I put that online if people haven't seen it. Uh, and, and now we come to sort of the Avengers, the Affinity Wars is the most recent one, setting new records for biggest opening weekend in the US globally. It's number two for the number of records that it's got. It's got 13 records. It's still got some way to go to take over from The Force Awakens, which has 32 records. Uh, but then this comes on the back of the Black Panther, which in itself set a whole bunch of new records and was the first sort of black superhero movie. Uh, and, and Marvel sort of, well, it's doing well. It's not leading the way. DC uh, did Wonder Woman, its first female lead, uh, which did, did very well. But it's really good to see how they're working it. And, and this is maybe the biggest distinction between the DC sort of universe and the Marvel universe. When Lee said, okay, I'm going to do things my way, he introduced something that made the characters a little more real. But maybe I should let you have Stan Lee explain this in his own Marvel way. They're the greatest stories ever told. Heroes show us we don't need to be perfect to do what's right. It's not about living without fear, but facing injustice. It's not about being powerful, but finding your calling when you least expect it. They show us it's okay to be vulnerable, no matter how tough you are. 
because even though they're heroes, they're still human. And that was a big difference. He's good, isn't he? He is. And that is Stanley. That's himself. He's, he's 96. 95. He's 90. He'll be 96 this year. He's still kicking around. Uh, he appears a lot. He, in fact, he has appeared in more of the Marvel movies. Those 19 movies I mentioned to you, yeah. he's been in almost all of them. <laughs> and I've got a little clip uh, that I posted guy. online. You can see him in all of them. He's always peering in there. He li- likes a bit of fun. Uh, but this was his thing, you see. Uh, Superman is flawless. He, he never does the wrong thing. Whereas most of the Marvel guys, they, they've got troubles. I mean... Tony Stark here, he's got a lot of guilt. He doesn't know if he should be doing this stuff. He's ridiculously wealthy and feels guilty as a result. Uh, but then the other part besides the characters of evolution is, is the actual stories that they pick up on. So Black Panther, for example, at one point, can you imagine Donald Trump supporters that said, this is the support. This is, uh, this is um, supporting Donald Trump's policies. Because you see, initially, <laughs> Black Panther and Wakanda had isolationist policies. They didn't want to let the rest of the world oh, know about me. You know, their fancy vibranium and everything else. But they... they put, put, point out at the rest of the movie that's bad and in Infinity Wars um, Thanos is looking to try and save the world from overpopulation he reckons it's a good idea to just kill half of the universe's living beings which is obviously not great for everybody else so th- those are the two elements that they combine. They do some really good stuff. Uh, they've, they've got Deadpool, the, the Merc with the Mouth. He's, he was the first um, rated 18 character to come out, and he's the second most successful R-rated movie, or adult movie ever, ever released. He did lose out to Jesus Christ, so he's probably a little disappointed. Maybe we want to try and take that on in the next one, but he did very, very well. And what we can look forward to in the future is Captain Marvel. That's next. That's their number 20 movie coming out. Uh, Captain Marvel is a female. Uh, and this will be um, Marvel's first female lead. Uh, Wonder Woman already came out for DC. Uh, but the two other characters we're going to see, we're going to see uh, uh, Miss America, who is uh, a Muslim American. And then the one that really goes is Miss America. Miss America is uh, Latina. She is uh, lesbian and has same-sex parents. So Marvel is really looking to break Whoa. all of those stereotypes it's with the upcoming so movies. It's so interesting. And you, and you wonder how commercially successful these films are going to be. Is it a good social experiment? Is it uh, paying tribute to just the different ways that people choose to live their lives? Or is there really a commercial element to this? It's going to be so interesting to see how they play out because they've been so wondrously successful so far. Um, are, you know, are the new themes that they're going to explore going to be as successful as the ones that they've broken ground with so far? Most unusual. Thank you, Colin Cullis. Business Unusual on a Wednesday with Colin Cullis. The Money Show. The Big Five. The Big Five this evening. The Big Five things we're learning from today's Euro bond issue. South Africa going to the Euro bond market and raising fresh capital. The chief executive at uh, Canon Asset Managers, professor at the Gordon Institute of Business Science, Dr. Adrian Saville. Um, first, what, what's a Euro bond, Adrian? Euro bond is where a country raises uh, debt in a currency different to uh, different than their own. So. You have a, a RAND government, a RAND uh, fiscus, and you raise uh, debt in dollars or euro. Or So the reference is really just to raising capital in a foreign bond market. So we're borrowing money in a foreign currency in a foreign market because 90% of our debt is in RAND. It's, so no matter what happens to the currency, we have to pay it back at a point in time in RAND. It's a lot more risky, is it not, borrowing euros or borrowing pounds or borrowing dollars? Exactly. And, you know, I think that that's the first of the big five points about raising uh, foreign debt is uh, you take on a currency risk as well as a credit risk. And the currency risk is that if you borrow the money at uh, you know, today, uh, 12 rand to the dollar, 
and then the rand blows out and you have to pay back those dollars, you might be paying them back at 15, 16, 18 to the dollar. So in addition to the interest rate charge, there is also a currency depreciation charge, which lands up being a double negative. So this, uh, it's really important that if you raise uh, a debt in, a, in another currency, you at least have a good handle uh, on that currency. And here there's a real concern because the RAND is one of the most volatile currencies in the world. So on the one breath, it could go uh, in our favor. The RAND could actually strengthen and we land up paying back fewer RANDs to match those dollars. But uh, if the economy uh, uh, goes the wrong way and inflation heads up, you land up with a weaker RAND paying back far more RANDs to service those dollars. So if you're prepared to take currency risk, do you get a better interest rate? Is that why we go out and borrow in foreign currency rather than simply borrow in rand? You can, you know, you can use the derivatives market to protect uh, you to to an extent, and you can ensure that you have a, a future currency locked in. So you can certainly do that. Um, that's one aspect of it, and you you are able to borrow at a lower rate in international markets than if you borrow in rands. If you look at the two billion dollars that was raised uh, in the last week. The, the rate uh, that the government borrowed at was between sort of five and a half and six and a half percent. You know, call it around six percent to to raise the two billion dollars. If they tried to raise that right now in the rand market, they would be paying not six percent but uh, eight and a half, maybe even nine percent uh, for ten-year money. And that uh, that two and a half differential then is essentially your uh, your advantage, your benefit of borrowing in the uh, in the harder currency but don't be fooled by that uh, there are other governments that are borrowing at much much lower rates in in dollars so uh, the chileans for instance are borrowing at just over four percent and the uh, the taiwanese are borrowing at one percent uh, um, in the euro bond market so south africa's euro bond borrowing at six percent is quite expensive okay so we have to pay up we are on the brink of junk status we can't forget that i know that moody's pulled us back from the brink we are in junk we may not like the ratings agencies but they do matter and their view of us matters so fitch and snp still say we're junk we're not worth lending to yeah and i think that's another of the big five uh, points is that uh, you can protest as much as you like. The ratings agencies matter. They have an influence and they have some sway over your cost of borrowing. Go back to the examples I've just given you. Taiwan is borrowing in the dollar market at 1%, Chile at 4%. They're both investment-grade status. Then we come to Brazil, which uh, is sub-investment-grade, borrowing at just over 5 And in the case of the Philippines and Colombia, they look uh, very South African, the Philippines and Colombia are borrowing at uh, six, six and a half percent, which is exactly the rate that South Africa is borrowing at. And Philippines and Colombia are sub-investment grade. Okay, so I mean, this is a complex. It's a complex field. Sentiment obviously then does matter. We're still. Yes. I mean, it's it's very clear that there is a the bond market has got a watching brief on South Africa, saying, "Look, very nice, good to see that you made all this progress so quickly and so far. That's fine. Carry on." and then we'll decide whether we like you more later. Yeah, look, sentiment matters in the sense that this is a large liquid market, and so you've got uh, a fair bunch of willing lenders. Uh, The uh, market to high-yield 
uh, hard currency debt from emerging markets. That bond market is about $150, $200 billion market. So South Africa's uh, activity there of 2 or $3 billion this year is relatively modest. But uh, if uh, the world gets into a, risk, a risk-off uh, stance, that uh, liquidity will dry up and your ability to then access those same 2 or $3 billion isn't going to be paying 6%. You're going to be paying 7%. And sentiment then is not just a, a sort of global sentiment en masse. Uh, it also varies you know, as much as from sort of day to day or week to week. And you see this in currency movements, I think that if uh, the the South African government tried to raise this as recently as a month ago, they might have got away with half a percent less. But right now, you know, you're sensitive to the sort of the hand-wringing that's going on in capital markets. It's a bad week to borrow. It's not been a great week to borrow, but we've done it, and it is in the bag, and we have the cash. Uh, It also isn't like a micro-loan. I mean, how are you going to spend it does matter um, in terms of your, your credibility. Yeah, and here history is a is a very powerful teacher, you know, where you look at governments that have borrowed in markets where they don't have their earnings. Uh, in other words, they uh, borrow dollars, they bring it back into a peso market, uh, and then they spend it poorly in peso and have to return the debt in dollars some years later with a much weaker currency. Uh, the uh, It often plays out uh, in the form of tragedy. And we've got example after example of this. Chile in the 1970s, Brazil in the 80s, the Asian economies in the 90s, Angola in the noughties. Uh, South Africa needs to be very mindful of the fact that, you know, although it's getting access to international capital at reasonably okay rates, it's not just about raising the money. It's how wisely and carefully you spend it And here, South Africa has two clear asks from the ratings agencies. Uh, Spend it more carefully, get your budget deficit in, and um, uh, get your growth rate up so that the spending translates into uh, effective uh, outcomes in terms of economic growth. Dr. Adrian Saville, Chief Executive of Canon Asset Managers. Thanks very much indeed. He also teaches at Gibbs. Uh, Yeah, the big five things we can learn from today's Eurobond issue. On the pricey side, but money in the bank. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. The Money Show. Shapeshifters. So I'm trying to figure out tonight's shapeshifter. Is he just a material boy in a material world? Does he have Spanish eyes or is he just a guy in vogue? You're a Madonna fan, right? (laughs) That is incredible. What a lovely intro. It's the first time ever. That is absolutely stunning, Bruce. Well, you know, I try. It's amazing being here. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to have you here. Sylvester Chauke, uh, biggest Madonna fan in the world. That's is correct. Our, is our shapeshifter this evening, the founder of <laughs> DNA Brand Architect. Um, what is it about Madonna? This is a woman who's old enough to be your grandmother. Uh, it's actually a lot more about the music, but also just the way that she managed to um, reposition herself throughout her life. It's really yeah. quite something. 
She's been an absolute chameleon of pop music. Um, and and is, she still, is she still doing songs? Is she still she's, she's still doing songs. And uh, she actually, two weeks ago, she was in studio um, in um, preparation for her new album. So I think um, in the next couple of months, we're going to be hearing something awesome from Mama M. Mama M. That's right. Sylvester Chauke, founder of DNA Brand Architects, last year named by the World Economic Forum as All Africa Young Business Leader of the Year 2017. Before we get to now, take me back to where you were born. Where does Sylvester Chauke come from? Yes, I was born in um, in Soweto, um, so a melting pot of um, in, incredible energy, obviously. And um, I think anybody who grew up in Soweto will tell you that um, you know you never grow up in Soweto um, and be just ordinary. So um, it was quite something to um, you know be young and be a youngster um, in Soweto growing up, um, and that has been um, you know amaz- an amazing foundation for me. Um, and a lot of how I am and a lot of the things that I do are definitely inspired by, by the environment, yeah. Tell me about your family. How did you grow up? Um, yeah, I grew up um, quite odd, actually. Um, I, uh, I was like the odd one in the family. I've got um, two younger sisters and a younger brother and who are all sort of very technical um, engineers, kind of girls and, uh, and, and boy. And then I was like the creative one, the odd one, um, you know, the strange one, the one that they always used to make fun of. Um, but your I think own fa- your own family or other kids? My my own family made fun of me. Oh, um, over and above, yes, um, other kids made fun of me. I think it was just because I was always awkward. I was very awkward growing up, um, and I was always living in my own world. And I guess maybe people didn't know how to handle me, and I don't blame them. Sometimes I look at myself in the mirror and still think it's it's an awkward thing. <laughs> was it a good childhood or was it quite rough? Was it it was a, it was an incredibly um, good childhood, I must say. I have um, incredible support from my family and I think they let me do whatever. I mean, how do you let um, a, a young boy growing up in, some, some, you know, in Soweto to go and study advertising back in the days, right? Um, and they just thought, you know, go and do it. And um, I think that was amazing to have that support. But it was a very challenging, um, um, you know, uh, experience too because obviously resources you can only do what you, um, as much as, as as your family can allow for you to do and as a dreamer and as a creative there were so many things that I used to you know for example I used to go to um, Randberg for dance classes and I would feel so sad that I wasn't having my parents picking me up and I was taking taxis and it was kind of like a very um, or you know odd experience for me because I felt I knew that I was definitely not part of the privileged um, and therefore it, it was um, uh, challenging as a young person um, to have to find the strength I guess um, to be able to understand that you can change it going forward on the next end you're doing dance classes in Randberg and so you so you learn how to be able to navigate different levels of, of consumers and experiences so to speak right because you can one minute you're like in a text rank at North Street and the next minute um, you're in a dance studio in a ballet dance studio in Randberg so what very interesting um, worlds and you, le- you learn how to navigate through them um, you become resilient and you also um, allow to um, I guess uh, explore more um, you are open to exploration because you you can live in in very extremes were you good at school were you were you a scholarly type um, I was 
I think it depends on what. <laughs> if it was anything to do with sort of being creative or writing or debating, that sort of thing, I was very good at it. But it, if it and then uh, I was really terrible at maths, for an example. Um, and you should, even, have done a, you should have done accountancy. That's become incredibly creative. <laughs> <laughs> you know, stop it now. Um, and and I, 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 I'm, I'm the type that has to work really hard. It doesn't come very naturally for me. Mm. Um, so academically, I, I definitely, you know, had to put in a lot more effort. I remember the one time, this is a joke, I never st- tell a lot of people, but um, when I did stats at university, um, you know, my first semester was was actually quite good because stats 1A was easy-ish and then I, stats 1B was absolutely horrible. The one time I actually got 50% um, of a test and I thought that was the, the end of me. Um, but I had to work that much harder to ensure that I improve it. So um, definitely not um, one of those easy um, academics, no. I have to work hard. Oh. What did you study at university? Um, um, BA in marketing communications. Okay, okay. So, yes. that was, so that so that and you did stats as part of that BA in marketing. Yes, stats. Yes, as part of BA marketing communications. Um, I I knew early on that I was definitely connected to the creative spaces and advertising was definitely the the area because when I was twelve years old, I found myself on set of a TV commercial. And I didn't know what was going on. All I knew was that I like what's going on here and I like all this, all, you know, all this commotion around here. And I, I, then I, I, I learned that they were shooting a TV commercial for a brand. They were trying to sell product to consumers. And I thought, okay, can I do this as a, you know, as a career? Um, and um, it turns out I could. And I then just definitely went ahead with it. And so university was all about that. And uh, as they say, the, the rest is history. What was the first job coming out of university? The first job was working at Verimark. I was um, um, at Verimark as a sales consultant and I work at the Randy Easter Show um, selling the, the Twister, the Health Walker, Bauer Pots and, and Shogun Knives. It was quite something. Um, Give me a sales patter. Sell me a Bauer pan. A Bauer pan. So, as, you, as, you would have, as, as you would have when you, would do, when you started out. Yeah, I, I, I would say how much do you pay generally for a pen? I don't know. Um, and how I'm long? Talk, I'm not your target market. I've yeah. been in years. I, I think you, you know. You're putting me on the spot. This is this is like many years ago. I want to see if you. I just want to see if you can go back into it because so often mm. you've got these things built into your DNA and it's just like it comes out just like blah, 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 and it comes up. But it's okay if it doesn't. It shows that you've gone through it. And you're, <laughs> you, you're you're recovering. Thank but, you for the save. <laughs> uh, but 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 the, this very mark thing. I mean, people go. People who go and do those customer facing sales jobs in retrospect, has to be the best training in the world for anything because you are experiencing the customer. You know when you've got them. You know you can see the moment in their eyes when you've lost them. Um, and it's such good training in terms of anything you ever do in life. It is incredible training. And I must say, um, I found myself working at Nando's um, a few, I mean, many years later after university. And um, as a rule... As you start working, you need to go and work at a restaurant for two weeks. It is required, whether you're a marketing director or whatever level you are. And I think it talks to you exactly that, the ability to be able to stand in front of customers and engage with them in, in the most authentic way to sell your product or to get them to engage with your service is an incredible training for any marketer because you, you really won't know how to sell if you don't really um, you know, practice that kind of hardcore selling um, on the ground or on the floor. And I must say that the very much experience just taught me a lot about how one needs to respect consumers but also how you can sell different ways 
um, to different people and how you mustn't underestimate consumers because generally the people that were selling a lot of the bar pots and the health walkers for me were the people that didn't look like they were going to buy from me. So you get to learn and get to um, appreciate people for who they are and not necessarily just how they look. Uh, you rose through the ranks of Nando's quite quickly. I mean, you ended up as a national marketing manager for Nando's. That's a, quite a big job. That was quite a big job, particularly then. I think that it was uh, an incredible opportunity because prior to that, I'd been working in advertising agencies like Ogilvy and DDB um, and FCB. Um, and so moving into the what they call the client side um, was quite a, a big move for me. But also it was a, an amazing opportunity because the brand and the leadership at Nando's um, had an incredibly uh, specific way of working, um, it was quite vital that um, one is able to harness that to be able to help um, drive the brand forward. So it was a highlight of my career, definitely. What is, what is it about Nando's that it can say things that other brands simply wouldn't dare to go anywhere near? Mm. Number of things. I think first of all is to acknowledge the business and the people that run the business. It's amazing because um, you know back then the the the, the chief um, executive officer and, and still now the founder um, Robbie Brosen is is very much of a marketing um, head, you know, so to speak. So he he he's able to look at brand building um, with a very strong brand um, f- you know focus. So it's about the experience, it's about what it says, about communication. So the environment allows for creativity to thrive because it it respects creativity. And what allows Fernandos to continue to say things that most brands can't is because of its authenticity of saying those things and this build a narrative based on commenting on what's happening around us. And I think that brands that do that, also brands that showcase that they, they are in tune with what's happening with the consumers and they're in tune with their environment which they operate. And I think if they continue to be in tune, then it allows them to give them the ability to be able to, to make comments. You, you've chosen your career quite carefully, or your career has chosen you quite carefully. I'm not sure which way around this is. <laughs> but but uh, you, know, you go from Nando's to MTV. I mean, there are very few brands that are cooler than, than, than those two. It was actually quite incredible because moving to MTV you know, was then that very strong pan-African approach and an amazing experience in terms of how do you then manage one brand on the continent um, to engage with Southern Africa, with West and East Africa, on the same way um, to be relevant in all those markets and to have products and uh, programs that are going to be um, engaging in all those markets equally. So an amazing span. So I walked into MTV and I was completely you know, uh, um, you know, absorbed into that experience of how then do we really build our brands on the continent um, to ensure that they are one brand across a number of different countries. A huge experience, um, but luckily amazing brands to be able to do so and an incredible organization too. Uh, you then decide to go and start your own agency. Mm. Um, how old are you, by the way? I'm 37 this year. And <laughs> it's all, you know, uh, the day I turned 35, uh, a former <laughs> friend of mine said, you know what, you're on top of the hill looking down. Do you feel like that? Um, kind of, I must say. There is a, you know, there is an element, but I, I got a text message the other day from a friend of mine who says, you can't say, I mean, you can't be still 30s. Uh, you know, you can't still be in your 30s, he said to me. And I said, yes, I am. I still have three more years to go. So I'm going to milk the next three years as much as possible before I stand on top of the hill at 40. <laughs> uh, and uh, if you can get to the top of the hill. I, uh, <laughs> uh, 
what what was your motivation for starting DNA? How old were you when you, um, when you went? I was uh, twenty nine, turning thirty. Um, what I what motivated me was I think I'd um, had quite an incredible experience um, at at MTV, at Nando's, at the amazing advertising agencies like Ogilvy, DDB, and FCB. Um, but I saw an opportunity with regards to the the integration of work across a number of brands because at the time a lot of brands um, had very silo approach or a silo approach to their marketing. So they had an advertising agency that does digital, an advertising agency that does above the line, below the line, you know, internal, et cetera, et cetera. But there was no one looking at how does it all converge together? How does it all make sense? Um, because, you know, uh, you need to, you know, have a helicopter view across how the brand is engaging, not only in just your disciplines that you that the agencies are working within. And I thought that was an amazing opportunity. And so DNA Brand Architects was born to try to come to be the, the glue or the link between all the different areas of a business so that they all interact well together. And I think that uh, seemed to have worked. Are you able to tell us who your big clients are? Yes, uh, we've got incredible incredible clients um you know um you know one of our really cool clients is sab south african breweries or now ab in bev and we started off working on a very small brand at the time called brutal fruit um mm-hmm. and then we were end up working on flying fish and then we will work a little bit of castle and then we won um you know one of the biggest and most awesome brands castle light um and we work on 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 that brand and across a number of different portfolios um on there we work with adcon um we work with um, famous brands on the likes of steers and and Wimpy, a Peno Ricard um, in Cape Town. And so we're really blessed. We have some really amazing clients, but clients that like what we do. So, I mean, when you work in an ABN Bev, I mean, do you see that as a progression? They give you the first job um, and then you, you don't mess that up. And then they go, right, then take Castle. And then you don't mess that up and do Castle Light because that's the big gorilla. I think, fortunately, in, if you work in advertising, you know that you're only as good as your last job. So yeah. it doesn't matter how long you have been working on a brand, you still have to it still has to feel like you just got it. Um, because as you understand and as you know, um, you know, creativity is something that, uh, um, you know, is in short supply lately, you know. And so it's important to... Um, uh, explain <laughs> what you mean by that. That's such an interesting statement. Yeah, I, 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 I just mean that to find the great idea, um, it's not necessarily that it's, it's available everywhere, you know. So you do need to be able to... Um, you know, partner, I suppose, with the right brands and the right people to be able to infuse those right partnerships. And I think in my experience, I, I, I guess um, the collaboration of, of brands between agency and brand and their co-creation of work is becoming more important now than just here's a solution, um, you know, Mr. Client. And I think that's really what I'm meaning. Um, so you've, you started uh, this business at the age of 29. You're 37 years old. You're eight years into it. Is it still as much fun as it was on the first day? Um, it actually, it, as it grows, it becomes um, a lot more different, right? Because obviously the requirements um, when you are year two are different to when you are year seven. So now it's, we, you know, we have to operate uh, like a bigger business. You know, we have to have systems and processes that are a lot more rigid, rigorous com- in comparison to when we were year two. So we're seeing that um, the, the challenge is different. Um, it's still a lot of fun. 
but it is requiring a lot more of a grown-up approach to how we run it. And I think that's uh, something that's been an amazing learning for me as a leader, but also um, being able to see how one navigates a business as it grows. Um, and has it suited you um, to be to be all grown-up and responsible, or do you still like to out, do you outsource a lot of the grown-up decision-making stuff? I get a sense that you, I don't want to say Jekyll and Hyde-ish about this, but uh. you are, um, you, you, I get that you get excited and stimulated by the business growth, but at the same time you are a creative to your core. Yes, I think so. I, I, I guess one of the things that I had to learn and balance is to obviously make sure that the energy is always infused as we deal with the business aspects, because when you think about the people and when you think about the output, ultimately it's going to be a creative output, which is our product that we sell to our customers, right? So um, that has to be consistent across the board. However, yes, we've had to ensure that the business itself surrounds itself with the right kind of business operators, business directors, strategists, who are also able to ensure that they assist us to run the business um, all together. So it's not a one-man band. I mean, I have an amazing team of people that, that work with me to ensure that then all the areas of a business are all covered. So it's not just all about creativity or just the extreme. You serve on lots of boards. I mean, the State Theatre, the Advisory Board, Advits, your own board, no doubt, as well. UJ, um, correction. It's UJ. Uh, you know, is it UJ? That's I right. That's right. That's right. Um, um, it's still good. I think that's amazing. I think every young person who's listening, who has an opportunity to be able to get themselves onto a platform like that, is hugely, hugely beneficial. You learn a lot. And I think you get to engage with a lot of really incredible leaders who have been doing this uh, business thing for you know, more, you know, more decades than you would ever imagine. So there's a huge value to be, to be given. And I think for me as well, a lot to add to that space because of, the, of, of, of just, I guess, the creativity and the ability to, to think so differently. So serving on those boards is an honor for me and it's an amazing opportunity um, to be able to to practice what I, you know, what I preach for other businesses. I mean, you're also one of the 22 young leaders from around the world to sit on the advisory council for the World Economic Forum's Global Shapers. What does that entail? What do you have to do um, to, we have, to keep your seat? <laughs> um, so uh, the World Economic Forum um, about um, seven years ago put together a, um, a group of young individuals called Global Shapers. So each city around the world has got what they call Global Shapers who are young people under 30. You, you must be under 30 to be part of it, who have who are doing incredible things in their communities. And so they put them together for them to come together and, um, you know, fix a challenge or address a couple of issues within their cities. Um, and then so last year they then put together an advisory board to, to say now we have over 300 hubs around the world. So it's a huge uh, network. How then do we take it forward and build it even further? And so they put together an advisory board, which we then put together a strategy of how we do that, and which is really what has been activated as we speak. Uh, and and your and your sort of recognition by the World Economic Forum as a global shaper. What's that feel like for a, for a kid who grew up in Soweto? That was incredible. I was twenty nine, and I actually remember uh, you know receiving a letter to that effect. And I just thought, but what have I just done? I'm just doing my job. You know, I'm just working and doing what I do. I don't see myself as a global shaper. But I guess um, over time, you you know you, you know people notice certain things about what you do. And I think I had to learn to just. Um, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, accept and acknowledge with grace um, what people see, and I think that was something that was quite incredible. Um, I also like it because it, it it also you know keeps you in your toes too, right? Because um, you know you 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 got to continue to give back and continue to also add value um, as you grow your career and as you grow your business. So it's not just about just the wine side of it. You also need to be able to be doing things for the community somehow.
I, I get a sense that you are quite philosophical about business and mm. the way in which a sense of purpose in business, which many people, their purpose is to make as much money as fast as they possibly can. Mm. Your, your purpose seems bigger. Absolutely. And I think that um, that is a, a blessing, sometimes a curse, but it's a blessing <laughs> uh, because it, a business has to be more than just uh, what we are doing you know, what we're doing for the output in terms of financial success. Um, there are a lot of people that look into a business and they get to, um, you know, change their lives based on your business and they get to grow themselves and their families because of the, because of a business. So uh, a purpose is everything. Uh, why we do what we do is everything. And it allows us to be able to continue to be motivated and excited because it's beyond just a monetary um, affair. Um, do you find yourself being preached to? Do you find yourself breathless? Or is everything just done on a wing and a prayer? I think, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it depends. I think ultimately it's, um, we've got to know what we, where we're going and what we're trying to do. Um, and it takes effort and sometimes you're going to run and you're going to be breathless and sometimes it's going to be easy, um, um, but sometimes it's going to be very, very, very challenging. But I guess it's just to be open to the process. I think that's what has been very helpful. But um, at this stage now, it's not, we are highly planning um, or we, we plan really well um, mm. we don't just close our eyes and hope for the best we we really work hard to deliver what needs to be delivered um, yeah um, may your lucky star look after you and this is now the power of goodbye I've used it virtually every oh! possible can. Jeez, so Bruce that was hey, amazing. Thank you. So, so subtle, he didn't even realize. Uh, oh, Mr. Joker, what an interesting story. <laughs> Thank you for sharing it with us this evening. Our shapeshifter tonight, the founder of DNA Brand Architects, Sylvester Chauke, um, in 37 years, has achieved quite a lot. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Is that the time already? It is that time already. It's 8 o'clock. Thanks so much for listening. Back again tomorrow. Stay tuned to your radio this evening. Lots of good stories coming up tonight on your radio between now and midnight. And then we start it all again, of course, just after Eyewitness News at midnight. So stay tuned. Good night.